Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed, and I hope you are. I am doing well, and I'm excited about this episode. We have something uh, brand new. We have an interview with a, a U.S. congressman this episode. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so we recorded this a couple of days ago with uh, Congressman Dan Bishop, a Republican from the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina, about his lawsuit against the judges on, this, uh, on the Court of Appeals and the justices on the Supreme Court of North Carolina. And we had mentioned it um, in one of the prior shows, so it was great to have the congressman come on and, and sort of give us a little bit of his take on things. I think we were both excited for the opportunity, and we appreciate his coming on the show. We really uh, do. We, He's our first talked, guest. That's right, our first guest. Uh, we talked about this lawsuit that he filed uh, actually on December 22nd against all these judges and justices in North Carolina. Do you want to give a quick summary of that, or you want me to? Uh, whatever you think. I mean, I'd be glad to do it, or you can do it. Go ahead. Okay. So the congressman is uh, obviously a candidate for re-election in the 2024, I'm sorry, 2022 uh, election cycle. And after the Court of Appeals um, putting a stay in place, if you will, and joining the March North Carolina partisan primaries, the full Court of Appeals dissolved the stay, and then the and then uh, the Supreme Court did likewise. Congressman Bishop asked for the. Uh, I guess the breakdown of votes at both levels to see which justices voted for and which justices voted against. Um, Because the uh, order, at least the Supreme Court order, was what we call per curiam, which means on behalf of the court, it's typically signed by a junior justice. And in this case, it was signed by the junior justice, uh, Justice Berenger, who was just elected in the 2020 uh, election cycle, and the clerk of uh, each court, as I as I understand the facts, uh, indicated to the congressman that the clerk's office is the custodian of the court records. The individual justices are the custodians of their notes, and that essentially there are no records to be provided by the clerk. And the the individual justices have not provided those records either. Um, And I guess theirs would typically, or or not typically, theirs would actually be just notes, um, which, you know, traditionally, both with the U.S. Supreme Court and the North Carolina Supreme Court, what the justices say and the notes they may take in conference when they come together as a body to decide a case before issuing opinions, those generally aren't released, or if they are, they're released you know, decades after the fact to some historian or, or, or someone writing a book, something like that, who finds them in, in a justice's papers. So the congressman's theory, um, and it is that um, the First Amendment is impinged because they don't know who voted for what. We don't really even know what the, quote-unquote, what the score was. Um, And the North Carolina statutes 
um, are, I think it's fair to say, biased in favor of open government. Uh, and the there has to be an exception under the, that body of law in North Carolina to prevent uh, members of the public from uh, having access to to, uh, to governmental records. Um, and that's my understanding of this case, and I'm sure I've just uh, at best gotten the, the tip of the iceberg, but that's where I am. I think you summarized it well. I, I would just, you know, reiterate that, it's not actually about uh, it's not actually about legislative districts or any of that. It's about how the uh, judges and justices issued this order, which changed the date of the North Carolina primary elections. I think too, the legislature sets the date for the primary. Correct. Well, that's correct. Okay. And in North Carolina, the legislature says December 6th is the filing date for candidates. And then the election was scheduled for March 8th. Right. And now the, the, the courts have not only have they said you won't do it when the legislature says do it, but you're going to do it when we say do it, which is May the whatever. And there's really no I don't think it's I think it. Anyone would be hard pressed to say to find the authority for the Supreme Court to unilaterally and arbitrarily set that date. All good points, Lee. Let's go to the congressman's interview now. We're very pleased to be joined by Congressman Dan Bishop, who represents the 9th Congressional District here in North Carolina. For a couple of weeks, Lee and I have talked about the litigation going through the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court regarding redistricting. And then the the most recent event there was that the Supreme Court completely rescheduled the North Carolina primaries and put off filing for candidates. After that, Congressman, you filed a lawsuit on January, excuse me, on December 22nd, naming all of the judges on the Court of Appeals as defendants and all the justices on the Supreme Court. And we had never heard of such. So uh, can you just tell us what led to your needing to file the lawsuit? Sure, Ed, and I'm glad to be with you. I, it, the you know the naming of the judges is uh, is part of the thing. We've also named uh, the clerks of those two courts, and it is an unusual thing. And the and the avenue to do that is relatively narrow. But the idea is uh, simply and really disconnected from the litigation. I'm not a party in that litigation, and uh, have had no uh, interaction with the judges in in that respect. But I asked for, as did many members of the media. Uh, access to the records that would show how the judges voted on the orders that, as you just made reference, stopped the candidate filing in process and deferred the 2022 North Carolina primary from March until May. So these orders come out uh, from the Court of Appeal, excuse me, from the Supreme Court. Uh, they're signed by one justice. You really couldn't read who that was. They were willing to say that that was the junior justice, associate justice, Justice Barringer. But in the Court of Appeals, uh, there, of course, before those orders, there was an order from a panel stopping the candidate filing in part on the Monday of that week, on December 6th, and uh, a, a, an en banc order late in the day reversing that. And so sought the same information from the Court of Appeals. Uh, and in neither case has that been forthcoming. And so the nature of the lawsuit is that there is a surprisingly robust amount of authority from the Supreme Court of the United States, as well as from the Fourth Circuit, that there is a public right of access to 
not only physically being present in courts for proceedings there, but access to judicial records. And so that's what I seek. Congressman, Ed and I were wondering uh, how, what uh, what do you know about suing courts? I mean, it, that, that seemed, as Ed said, a novel idea. Um, I, I assume you, you sort of came to the conclusion that you didn't have any choice as a way to get that information. That, that's right, uh, Lee. I mean, the sole possessors of this information uh, it, are courts and at least the clerks, but also in some cases the, ju- the uh, justices. So let me be specific as to the need uh, for the justices on uh, the Supreme Court. You know, I, in my interaction with, and my lawsuit alleges this, in my interaction with the clerk, she said that she I asked for the records of the, of the vote, votes of the judges, and she said, I don't have that information uh, or those records. And I said, well, don't you have all records of the court in your custody? And she said, I only have custody of the records of the clerk's office. The justices have custody of the records of their chambers. So uh, she allegedly uh, doesn't have access to the votes on the Supreme Court on that order, which means I've got to sue the justices if that's in fact the case. Similar situation perhaps on the Court of Appeals, not precisely the same. And as you anticipate, Lee, it's tough. I mean, there's judicial immunity which is very broad, uh, but it doesn't protect judges from administ- from uh, uh, accountability for administrative actions that they take. Uh, and even, even if a, a judicial officer is acting in a judicial capacity, the court can afford declaratory relief if that action violates a, a constitutional right and is therefore actionable under 42, Section 1983. Well, I noticed that you signed the complaint. Are you representing yourself on this? I am. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Ed. There, there are lots of different uh, public interest law firms around, but they, they're all, they've all got their hands full. This is a fairly precise and narrow issue, and I just decided uh, as a member of the public that uh, – and I've, I've, had, <laughs> I've had some plaudits from media, which is atypical for me because I'm – pretty conservative, and, and they generally haven't agreed, uh, big media in North Carolina, but uh, they've been uh, maybe grudgingly supportive of this because it's a it's an interesting point. If you think about the, if you step back from the details and the technicalities of the lawsuit, and you think about the situation, you know, in a banana republic, it would be the military junta that stops an election process from going forward, and somebody could say in response, that that's a little over the top. They haven't stopped an election. They've deferred it. But, I mean, you've got dates and processes in connection with the election that are set by law, by statute. And a court, and and they've taken jurisdiction of a lawsuit over redistricting. I understand that. But the notion that a court can say, whammo, uh, we're issuing an, an order. Nobody knows exactly which of the judges or justices voted to do it or to reverse it in the case of the Court of Appeals. Um, and the and the order is to stop candidate filing and and stop a primary election that was to occur on March eighth, uh, and nobody knows who did it. Nobody knows. And and if you look at the orders, none of them. This is a remarkable for you all are both law- lawyers, and I've done a fair amount of preliminary injunction practice in my day, and the the, the, the Supreme Court's. Order was styled as a preliminary injunction on the relief that they granted, and it doesn't say one word about why that is warranted. 
And uh, I find that extraordinary. I'm not attacking that in this lawsuit because I'm not in position to. But this notion that you, that the, I mean, at least, at the very least, it seems to me, in a situation where uh, the judges are elected, they're selected by the public, members of the public are entitled to know who's voting to shut down their elections. No, your lawsuit seems very focused on the transparency piece of, of, you know, how they decided this. And I can imagine you would get some media organization support on that. I was just going to say I, it, would, it would be nice to uh, also have other parties I- I in the case. You know, most of these cases uh, over the uh, last 40 years that have established this First Amendment right of public access have been pursued by media organizations. And unfortunately, it's a testament, I guess, to the modern day status of this, that, that the media is sort of cheering me on, but is not taking action to uh, step in. I hope that they will. I, I would love for uh, someone to intervene or uh, media organizations to, to uh, uh, offer amicus support and so forth. But we'll just have to see. Right now, I was the guy that was prepared to do it, and uh, it just got my attention, and I decided it was uh, way past due. Congressman, we, we, when we spoke of this a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was intrigued. Uh, do you think it may be too early to know, will the attorney general represent each of these individual defendants in, the, uh, in their official capacities and in their individual capacities? Well, it, it, yes. And so the answer is that the attorney general's office has already appeared in the lawsuit uh, they we had a fair amount of contact, uh, modifying deadlines and making preparations for that. But if you if you go look uh, in in the rules on service of process on state agencies, there is the the administrative office of the courts has a process agent and the and I'm not shocked by that. I, it, it obviously does create an interesting situation. The attorney general has so many irons in the fire on these disputes. You've got the attorney general and the governor themselves who have. Uh, I guess uh, offered amicus uh, uh, or, or some sort of uh, opportunity to state that they want the Supreme Court to do what it's done. Uh, you have the Attorney General, uh, Attorney General's office, who are representing the Board of Elections, State Board of Elections, in that lawsuit, and and now they're going to appear in support of the uh, court's efforts to maintain secrecy in the lawsuit I've presented. It is, I, and I, I have more, too much to do to, to analyze all that, but it is, it is interesting. It, it is. What's the next step in the litigation? Well, we've got uh, a, a deadline of January 31 right now for a response to the complaint that for, for a response of uh, pleading or, or motions to dismiss, I'm sure will be forthcoming attempting to attack subject matter jurisdiction and present immunity defenses and the like. Uh, we also, they, they have agreed to that date as the date to respond to the motion for preliminary injunction. I may modify and narrow some of the allegations in the lawsuit even further to bring great, greater focus to it. But as I said, it is a, it is a threading the needle, uh, kind of effort. It, it, it certainly, there's the, there's lots of authority in which federal courts have ordered state courts to provide access to records. So that's not at all unprecedented, uh, but I want to make sure the rifle shot is very uh, clean and narrow. So I'm, I'm hopeful that by mid-February, we'll have an opportunity for the court to be taking up consideration of the preliminary injunction motion. 
And whatever the court does about that, there's also about injunctive relief. There is also a claim for declaratory relief. And I think, um, I think there's also a public, uh, a public sphere sort of element to this. And there needs to be ongoing debate. Uh, you know, actually before the United States Supreme Court rec- first recognized a First Amendment protected right of public access to court proceedings and court documents, uh, there had been some decisions in which they had said the opposite and they were widely criticized for it. And, and they came around to recognize and that was not a sustainable position. And I think the same thing here. Uh, we, there, my, my lawsuit, uh, and the technical obstacles to it are, you know, is one thing, but I think North Carolinians, even more broadly than North Carolina, but, you know, we see the situation where it's come to pass. If you go back to Baker versus Carr in the 1950s and uh, the way districting, redistricting litigation, primarily redistricting, but it's not limited to districting. So the 2020 election saw this massive flood of uh, uh, litigation efforts coordinated by Mark Elias, Democrat uh, Party, to... Um, to challenge basic election regulation, which has been a province primarily of state uh, legislature regulation across the country. In fact, the dissenting, uh, three dissenting judges, Wilkinson, Agee, and uh, Niemeyer in the Fourth Circuit wrote an interesting dissent about that whole phenomenon. So now we've come to pass, it's come to pass when you go back to before Baker versus Carr, it was entirely the province of the legislature. Uh, increasingly for 50 years, it's been more and more litigation to the point that just about every election is either, uh, you know, thrown into chaos or, or disrupted, or there's a threat of th- disruption um, before it is uh, completed from courts. And uh, I think if that's the situation, we've got it. We need to examine it. And uh, it's a big, it's a significant issue of public policy. I think what needs to happen is that whatever the interference of courts is, it ought to be, uh, it, it shouldn't be that we're having novel uh, n- theories every single election cycle and they are stopping or disrupting election processes as they occur. So I, I just think, and the Supreme Court's spoken to this some, but uh, I think there's more to be said. And, and certainly, I think if that's going on, uh, it seems a very modest proposal to say that People should be, uh, the, the public should have an opportunity to know who's doing it. Well, we agree with you, and we find this interesting, so we're certainly going to continue to follow it. Um, we're well past the time you promised us. We want to thank you for coming on the, the podcast this week. I know our listeners will be interested, and we'll hopefully touch base with you as this goes along. That'll be great. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Again, we want to thank Congressman Bishop for coming on the show, being our first guest and giving us some uh, insight into this lawsuit that he has filed and that he is pursuing in federal court. And we'll certainly be following that as it goes forward. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. (music) 